Turn with me. Back again to Acts chapter 17. As this morning we we get back to watching Christ build His church. Watching Jesus at work throughout the book of Acts. And since it's been several weeks before we we've dug into the book of Acts, I thought it would be helpful for us all to to just give a a little bit of a summary as to where we are right now in the book of Acts. For we've left the the Apostle Peter and the Apostle to the Jews behind and we are now looking at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle to the Gentiles. We finished his first missionary journey and now we find ourselves in his second missionary journey and he was going from place to place. And, and we know that, that he had this wonderful time in Berea where, where, where the people there as he preached would, would take whatever he said and hold it up to God's Word and what had been revealed to make sure that indeed what he was saying matched up. And then we saw several weeks ago that he arrives in Athens. And as he arrived in Athens, he, he gives us several glimpses into, into his life, into the life of Paul as the missionary that you and I, we must recognize. And that we must follow suit for the kind of man that Paul was is the kind of man that, that we should be. That kind of desire, that kind of heart. And as he comes into Athens, the first thing that, that we saw is that he had a heart for the lost. And I I don't believe we can tell from the Scriptures that his intention was to jump right into ministry. He he was going to just hang out as a tourist for a while. He he was just going to survey the land, check out the city, maybe check out the sites. But as he did that, what happened? His heartstrings were pulled. Why? Because he saw idol after idol after idol everywhere, strewn about throughout the whole city. And And as he did that, it just pulled on his heart. And we saw that then what happened next was that heart for the lost then went into an impact on the lost. And so what did he do? He started going to the synagogue, but he didn't just leave it at the synagogue. Why? Because he wanted the whole city reached. And, and so he started going to the marketplace and he, and he started to proclaim Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see this morning is, is that he doesn't stop there, right? That, that's really just the introduction. That's even before the introduction. That, that's, the, that's the preface. Before we even get into the introduction, the first couple pages of the book, and now what we are really going to see is what he did in Athens and what everything was all about for Paul because this is where he was planning on going. What, what he finally is going to share with them that we are going to see this morning is he has a word for the lost. He doesn't just have a heart for the lost. He doesn't just have an impact on the lost. And, and as a result of the interaction that, that he has with them, that they become curious over the message that he is proclaiming. But this morning, we will see very clear, very definite that he has a word for the lost. And my question for us this morning is, how about you? Do, do you have a word for the lost? Do you have a heart for the lost? Are you having an impact on the lost, on those that are around us? And what does that look like? Or are you still waiting, thinking that you need more training? When, when all that God has given us in His Word is sufficient, 
And what we are going to see this morning is, is not the norm. We're actually going to see Paul step outside of, of what would be his normal missionary routine. And this should be an encouragement to us this morning. And what God wants to do in and through us as we engage this world, as we step out and share Christ with others. And I want to go back and I, I want to start this morning with Acts chapter 17 verses 22 and 23. As we see that in Paul's plan, before he's able to truly proclaim the message of Christ, there, there is an aspect where he connects and he engages with them. And rather than it being an offense, he, he opens the door for the message to, to be at least heard, if not received by some. So look at verses 22 and 23 this morning. And remember, this is after Paul is cruised around Athens, had his heart strings pulled, and, and then he wants to reach out to this city. And as he's reaching out to this city, the, the philosophers, the, the more influential people of the city, then call upon him and say, hey, we want to hear this message that you are proclaiming. And as he stands before them, this is what happens. So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I want to point out, I want to present this morning how Paul engages. Because make no mistake that there is a confrontational pulse to what is going on here, right? He's not approaching them easy. He is confronting them, but he's doing it in such a way that it doesn't even seem that confrontational. Why? Because he's gentle and he's, and he's bringing what he's going to say into, the, into a context of familiarity. And, and, and some sort of connection with the group. Why? Because he's letting them know, hey, I, I know you, I understand you. And then what does he do? He then uses that as a springboard, as a launch pad into the gospel. And, and what is the message for us? Let the gospel be the thing that is offensive. We're going to see that some are offended. But notice, they're not offended at this point. They're not offended with the messenger. They become offended with the message. And, and that is where you and I, where we should land. Let, let's not let us be the offensive thing. But, but let's let the gospel, if it is going to be offensive, be offensive. And, and that is what Paul does. He starts off with this idea that, that he's pulling them in. Hey, I get you guys. I understand. And notice what he's saying is that they actually believe in God. Right? Did, did you catch that? that? That there is this aspect that they are worshiping the real and true and, and one God, but they're worshiping Him in ignorance. That they do not know Him for who He is. And that is now what He's going to do. 
He's going to explain to them exactly who this God is, and He's going to show to them, He's going to reveal to them that not only is He knowable, but that you should know Him. In fact, your eternal state hangs in the balance of this. And that is where He goes. In all of this, I wonder if, if some of us are more like the Athenians than we think. Because in, in, in the reality of, of where they lived, they, they knew God, but they didn't know Him. They, they didn't truly grasp the significance of who this God was and is that they were supposedly worshiping. And I wonder if in, in some aspects we do the same thing. That we come to church Sunday after Sunday, we live our lives day in and day out, and we, and we miss the God of all little g-gods, the God of all, period. And how great and how magnificent He is that this truly is the God of all. And this morning, what we are going to see is the magnificence of God displayed by the Apostle Paul. So, so let's, let's continue on and look at verses 24 to 34. As Paul gets, gets into the message that he has for the Athenians. As he says this, and this would be his sermon, and it's so much shorter than so, so many of Apostle Paul's other sermons, or, or Peter's sermon that, that we've seen early on in the book of Acts. Why? Because the audience is different. And so he, he caters the message, but he doesn't compromise the message. He makes sure that contextually, as far as his pe- the people that he's speaking to, that they would understand it. But he's not going to compromise on the gospel. He still gets to the gospel. But he pulls them in. As he says this, verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, For we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this morning as we look at Your Word, we want to behold You 
for who you are. We ask that you would help us with that this morning, for we truly need your help. Allow us to get a better glimpse, a better understanding of who you are and how great you are. That ultimately, we would point others to to you and how great you are and that we would worship you in the spirit of truth because of hearts overflowing and how great you truly are. So guide our time now and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, where does Paul go with this? He, he wants to let the Athenians know that this unknown God that they are worshiping is knowable. Not only is He knowable, but they must know Him. And in these verses, I believe what we see are four landmarks that we should all see and behold and, and consider in determining who our God is. And when I, I say landmark, I don't know if you're like me, but, but I tend to use landmarks all the time. It's, maybe it's because I'm a visual learner. And it's just much easier for me to think in terms of when I'm driving someplace, hey, just tell me where, 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 where there's something that, that I can go and think about. Okay, I know where that is. And from that point, I can then get to wherever it is I need to go to. So when somebody asked me, well, where do you live? I said, well, we live by Walmart off of Temecula Parkway. And then that, to me, makes it easy for them to, okay, so you head towards the Walmart on Temecula Parkway. And what does that do? That gives them some sort of point of reference. I I believe what, what is going on here is with the Athenians, they had so many preconceived notions as to who God is. Why? Because they had so many gods. And so what, what is Paul doing? He, he's going to clearly establish these areas, the, these points of reference to let them know, hey, this God is not like all these other little G-gods that you worship. This God is altogether different. He's altogether greater. And he, and he does this by establishing what, what I would present to you, these, these four landmarks, in order for them to see, hey, this is where you need to go in order for you to have a a true understanding of who this unknown God is, you must understand this about Him. And in this, we can see that this gives us a a good place to start too. Whether we're talking about our own personal lives, that we need to understand these things about the Lord, or we're talking about taking someone to the Lord. This is where Paul goes with his evangelism. This is his evangelism method. And and where does he start? Look at verse 24. He starts with God being the creator. Or the creator of all things. (laughs) Sorry. And what does he say? Of all the places to start, he, he starts really with what is all around them. As he says this, the God who made the world and all things in it. He's pointing them to the fact that that God didn't just make the earth. 
That God didn't just make the heavens. He made all. He made all of the cosmos. That's the word there. God made all things. And as he starts with this, this would slam right into their particular worldview. Why? Because we know that that they were Epicureans. That they were Stoics. And and as a result, they believed that, that God was this impersonal God. This God that was not involved. And what he's telling them is the complete opposite. Not only is he involved, but he created everything that you see. And, and do not be mistaken that this God is the one and true God. And so as he says this, I can only imagine that as the Athenians are hearing this, that this is already rubbing the, them, right? Just as this would rub against much of our society today. Why? Because more and more, it's, it's becoming more and more prominent that God is taking out of everything. Let's take God out of schools. Let's take God out of creation. Let's say, oh no, it's evolution. That's where everything came from. That's where humanity came from. And do we go just to silence and or science in order to dispel this? And say, okay, yes, yes, as, as far as evolution goes, it's, it's built upon this idea that, that there's some sort of natural process that, that, that goes from something that's in a less ordered state to a, to a more and, and, and better ordered state where something goes from, from something bad and, and, and then becomes good. And, and how often do you see that happen? Right? Any of us who have a car recognize that, that if we don't do anything to, to keep our cars well maintained, that it's not going to take very long and that car of yours is no longer going to be working. But do we then say that the reason why we don't buy into evolution is, is because science or, or what have you dispels it? No, we know that God's Word is the ultimate authority. And God's Word is clearly communicated in Genesis 1.1, Ephesians 3.9, Colossians 1.16. There's just so many scriptures, even in Revelation 4, that God is the one who created everything. And that's where Paul starts. And yet this is a battleground. There's a battleground then, it's a battleground now. It was a, it was a battleground in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Why? Because the people there that we worked with They didn't believe that God created everything. They believed that some great big bird created everything. So I ask you this morning, what do you believe? And and how do you live as, as far as the reality that God is the creator of all things? Or perhaps your view of God is 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 just a little bit smaller. And and as you consider him, do you do you Sit back and, and contemplate the, the majesty of our God. That, that through His Word and His Word alone, He created everything. I believe to some extent, Paul didn't want to just deal with only the aspect of creation. And, and because he recognizes that the Athenians' view of God and, and their gods is so small that he needed to ramp up and allow them to understand what he really means when he says, okay, God is the creator of all. He's not just the creator of all, but he is one who does not dwell in temples made by hands of men. What is he getting at there? He's, he's letting them know that this God is nothing like the gods that you have all around you. 
This God is altogether different. And if we were to turn to 1 Kings, and you can write this in your notes if you want, 1 Kings chapter 8, 27 to 28, and, and that is the, the time where Solomon is, is now constructing the temple and he's, and he's talking about, okay, can God dwell in this? And this is what he says. This is amazing. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Is that your perspective of God? Or, or perhaps is God for you just a little bit smaller? Let me read that again. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. We must understand the magnitude and the greatness of our God. And, and that is where Paul starts off. That because he created all things, he owns all things. And as a result, he is above all things. And he, therefore, cannot be contained. And so he acknowledges this, and he lets them know, okay, yes, God is the creator of all things, but he doesn't stop there. In fact, he's just getting started. And then he goes on, and in and, and the next verse, he, he goes into this. He says that not only is God the, the creator of all things, but God is the giver of all things. Namely speaking to man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He starts off with a negative statement saying, you know what? You know what a great God this is? This unknown God that you do not know. This one and true God. You know how great he is? He is so great that he does not need to be given anything. He doesn't need the praise of men. God didn't create men because He had some sort of hole in His heart and that He was somehow limited in, in, in some way and that, and that creating mankind and all of creation was then going to make God complete. He's nothing like us. He's altogether greater than we are. And when, it's, when He speaks of God, He speaks of Him as, as being the giver of all things, in, including life and breath man as we see that they cannot be served by men and, and as we see this God is, is not needy in any way unlike us we are so needy how long can we exist without food how long can we exist without water Psalm 104 Verses 14 to 15 says this. And, and, and just consider this or, or turn there. Psalm 104. Verses 14 and 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. 
God is the giver of all things. Now, in, in, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, this was something that is, that, that is prevalent, that is right there in your face. You recognize it. And, and when the people group that we worked with, when, when they came to understand the fact that, that everything that they have is given to them by God, they then started giving testimony of things like this, saying, oh, we cannot believe that for generation after generation after generation, God was giving us by His hand our food. Our very sustenance in the pigs that we were able to shoot in our gardens and all the vegetables that we had, that came from God long before we knew Him. And now that we know Him, oh, we praise Him and we thank Him continually, day in and day, and day out. As I walk with my children, this is what men would say to me. I would point to that banana tree and I would say, God made that tree and He gave us that food to eat of it. Is your attitude like that? Do you think in terms of of everything coming from the hand of a gracious, loving, and giving God? When you drove this morning, did you thank God for giving you the car that you got in? As you left your house, did you thank God that you live in a nice house where no matter how cold it was last night, you were okay? No, I think many times we don't think in terms of like this, do we? we? We take God's goodness and His grace for granted. And what Paul is reminding the Athenians is that God is greater than all. That He is the creator of all and that He is the giver of all. But again, He doesn't stop there. And He gets even more personal with them. And He, and he reveals to them this. That He is the determiner of all people. Look at verses 26 to 29. Back in Acts chapter 17. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Just think about that. The population of the world today stems back to this. That God created Adam and placed him in the garden. And from there comes all nations. But it goes so much deeper than that. So much greater than that. As he goes on and to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Having determined when they would be born. And where they would be born. Not only where they would be born, but the boundaries of their habitation. Something that limits a place, a a boundary marker. To let them know, hey, you're going to go this far, but no further. This doesn't mean that much to us. But but come to Papua New Guinea, and you would see that it means a lot to to a people group who only have their feet to walk on. Why? Because the furthest they have gone is maybe five or six miles in a circumference. In a radius around that village. We in America, especially those of us in California, we're blessed. We travel hundreds of miles. Some of you get on airplanes and you you travel all over the states. Some of you go overseas. And so your boundaries, they're, they're huge. But for many people in the world, their boundary is a very small little spot. And what is God saying? He determined that boundary. That's how in control our God is. 
purposing all these things, determining them. And then he, he goes on. That they would seek God. If perhaps they, they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Did you notice where Paul goes? He goes right to the scroll of Isaiah. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. He goes right to the scroll of Psalms and pulls out one of the... No. When he's evangelizing them and he's, and he's now getting to the point where he, he's actually taking some of their worldview and he's, and he's holding it up to, to what God's Word would say, who our God is. And he takes their poets... And he depicts something that their poets say, where they say, for we are his children. Wait, does that mean what the poet said was true? And I would say yes and no. (laughs) Because on the one hand, it, it is true that God is the creator of all. So in that aspect, all mankind are his children. But who they were ascribing this statement to was the part that was off. They didn't know the one true God. They didn't view God as the creator, as the giver, as the determiner of all people. And so what does Paul do? Notice his his strategy. He does something that I think you and I would have a very difficult time doing. He pulls out of their own culture. And he uses that as a launch pad. But he doesn't stay there. In fact, he hardly stays there at all. He uses it as an opportunity to say, okay, yes, this is what your poets say, but don't think that that God is anything like what you think He is. Because He's not fashioned by man. He's not constructed by gold or silver or any of these things. He's much greater than that. And I wonder, as we consider this, if the, if the Lord perhaps wants us to think outside of our particular little box and how we relate to people and how we share the gospel. And, and I don't know exactly what this looks like for you. But, but maybe this, this looks something like the, the impeachment trial that just happened and the buzz that everybody was talking about. And can you use that as an opportunity to jump into the gospel? You bet you can. Or or the State of the Union address. Or some other thing in, in, in the culture that is going on. Can you use that as Paul did? To then launch into the gospel. So we see that, that they did have some sort of knowledge, but their knowledge was off. And that's why then Paul then steers them. And and wants them to know this God of all creation. This God who is the giver of all things. This God who is the determiner of all people. And that includes you and me. That God knew exactly. In fact, He didn't just know exactly. He didn't look down the portals of time and say, Oh, look, Jason Swanson's going to be born in, born in Torrance, California. No, no, no. He determined exactly when I would be born, where I would be born. 
and to whose parents I would be born to. All of that is determined by our God. Just consider that. And bask in God's infiniteness and His greatness and how great He is. But He doesn't stop there, right? He keeps going. And he's getting them to a certain point. Why? Because up to this point, he hasn't shared anything with them that would save them. Right? He hasn't gotten to the answer. I don't even know that we've seen here that he's gotten to the problem. I think there's a lot implied here that, that Luke is only giving us a snapshot of what actually was communicated. But look at what he says next. As he gets into something that we must all come to grips with. And that is that, that God is the judge of all people. Look at verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished, furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What is he doing? He's, he's drawing them to the understanding that one day, one day soon, we don't know when, but this day is coming, a day of judgment is coming. And all will stand in that judgment. If you do not know Christ, what will happen? That judgment will not go well. And those of us that do know Christ, we do not stand under that judgment. Amen? Amen. And we see that, again, the determination of our God, that if you want to call it the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control of all things. He's not just in control of where you were born, when you were born, but, but He also planned out who this judge was going to be, when He was going to come, and who He is. He obviously is pointing them to Jesus Christ and letting them know that Jesus is going to be the appointed judge on that day. And then he, he uses this as, as a launch pad and, and gives them three reasons that they should repent. Right here, right now. He's calling them to some sort of action. He wants a response. And he's letting them know now is the time. And, and what is the, the first criteria, the first reason for repenting that he gives them? Because God has been patient. God has been patient up to this point. He's been overlooking man's ignorance. But that is not going to go on forever. And the same is true for all of us this morning. If you have not turned to Christ, you must consider this this morning. That perhaps that is the reason why you are here listening to this message this morning. That you would turn in repentance to Jesus Christ. That you would recognize your sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. And you would turn to Him. Because this time of reckoning is coming. And then He says also, this isn't optional. Repentance is something that is commanded. Either you repent or you push away. And you refuse what God is now offering you. That is what He's presenting them to. 
with, with this idea of, okay, yes, God has been patient, but that patience is, is not going to last forever. And His patience should lead you to repentance. And finally, that He's appointed a day of judgment. That in itself should be an impetus, should encourage them to repent because they do not know when this day of judgment is coming. And we must recognize that it's not enough for someone to be saved merely by attesting to believing that God is the creator of all, that He is the giver of all, that that He even is the determiner or the sustainer of all things. But they must come to a personal understanding that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the way to the Father and the only way. And as such, we must present Jesus as the answer. Which is exactly where Paul goes. Right? And as he goes there, look at what happens. Immediately, we see two responses. Based upon the fact that that Paul elevates Jesus Christ and, and says that God raised Him from the dead as proof that God accepted His sacrifice on on the cross. And then we hear this, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear again concerning this. So we see immediately two responses. One response is is they just stiff-arm Paul's message and they say, No, we don't want any of that. Why is that? Because this went so much against what the normal thought of the day was. You see, for the Athenians, what they were all about was the immaterial, the spiritual, the soul of man. The body, the flesh was considered wrong and bad and evil. And the last thing they wanted was to actually have a resurrection where perhaps this body, this this flesh would be with them for all of eternity. And so as soon as someone started even talking about the resurrection, they would just turn off. And they would have nothing of it. And that's exactly what happens here for some. We see others are curious. They want to hear more. But we're, we're really not told much more than this. As we see God in His, in His goodness and His grace doesn't allow the story to end there. In 33 and 34... It says that, that Paul went out of their midst. So he, he leaves that group, but some men joined with him and believed. A, a man of stature, a man of prominence. Dionysius, who, who was an Arapa guy, so he must have been involved in this court. And no doubt the Lord used him, and then, and then a woman named Damaris. But that's all that we see. And that's all that we hear, even in, in, in history. We, we don't hear about this wonderful, strong missionary church coming out of Athens like like we do for Berea, for Thessalonica. Why is that? I wonder if it's because of the philosophy of the day. I wonder if the philosophy of the day was so pervasive, was so strongly held to, that they all just push back. And I would think that as 
as everything is working itself out with this, that there had to be to some extent a, a little bit of discouragement on the side of Paul. That he was discouraged. As he walked around and saw all of these people that were dead in their sins and in slavery to idolatry and worshiping false gods everywhere at every corner. He no doubt was picturing, at least this is what I would be picturing, that that as soon as the gospel was presented and as soon as I got to Jesus Christ and His resurrection, that the guys would take out bats and they would just start running around and just knocking down all of these statues and these idols and, 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 and all of these altars that were around, but we don't see any of that. And yet, take heart. Because instead of becoming so discouraged and leaving and going back home to Antioch, Paul doesn't do any of that. We're going to see next week that he continues on. And that he continues to trust the Lord. And he continues to obey the Lord and go on trusting that the Lord in the next place will meet him there as well. Just as the Lord will meet you. No matter how someone responds. Recognize here that we see three different responses. One is an outright rejection. I'm I'm sure that that has already happened to you. That will continue to happen. That doesn't mean we stop. That means that that is in the hands of the Lord. He is the one that changes man's heart. Others, they might want to hear more, but perhaps after they hear more, they still don't respond. That is still in the Lord's court. Right? That, that is what He is responsible. We leave that to Him. Our responsibility is to share the hope that lies within us. And perhaps by God's grace, the, the Lord will allow you the, the privilege of using you to point someone to Christ and they will believe. Just as we have seen in Acts and we, we see here in in 17. Let me let me close with some some points to ponder. Consider everything about you was orchestrated, was planned, was purposed, was appointed and determined by God. Where you were born, what family you were born into, what your nationality is, when you were born, God is the author of it all. What a marvelous thought. All of that was controlled by God. How do, do these thoughts help shape you and who you are? And who God is, or more in particular, who your perception, what your perception is of who God is. Whether you actually believe God to be as great as He really is, and in control of everything as He really is, and as Scripture lets us know He is. Number two, consider how Paul quotes some of the poets that the Athenians read and represented their particular worldview. What ways might you be listening to the poets and prophets of our day as a way to engage people around us with the gospel. And number three, consider how these, how there are three different responses to Paul's message, right? There's a rejection, there's a desire to hear more, and then there are those who literally accept the message. How do these responses, how do they teach you about having a realistic and hopeful expectation when you share Christ with others? These are good, encouraging things to consider and to See how great our God is and how He goes before us and all that we endeavor to do by His strength and for His glory. Amen? Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You 
We thank you for, again, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul for your word. We thank you for the example that he is to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our lives to give us a better perception, a better understanding of your greatness. How you are indeed the creator of all, the giver of all, the sustainer of all, Lord, the determiner of all, and that one day, truly you will be the judge of all. And we desire that when that day comes, that we would enter into your kingdom and that you would say, well done, be good and faithful. Go before us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.